Welcome to the Ad Watchers, a podcast brought to you by the National Advertising Division of BBB National Programs. We're a team of attorneys with 50 years of experience investigating and resolving disputes over the truthfulness and accuracy of national advertising campaigns. I'm Hal Hodes. And I'm Latoya Sutton. To make sure advertisers can back up what they're telling consumers, we don't just take ads at face value. We put them to the test. Why? Because advertising law is simple. It's the execution that's hard. Welcome back, everybody. This is the second episode of Ad Watchers. If you haven't listened to our first episode, don't worry. It's available wherever you're listening to this episode, so you can easily catch up. So let's just jump right in. What are we talking about today, Hal? Hi, Latoya. So last month, we kicked off our discussion with a question that we often hear from people who come to the National Advertising Division, the Advertising Self-Regulatory Forum. And that question is, who makes the rules? And so that sort of begs the question, well, what are the rules? So as we say in our intro, you know, oh, easy, right? Um, When it comes to claim substantiation, the rules are you have to have a reasonable basis for your advertising claims. Right. So what's reasonable? You know, that's the hard part. Any lawyer knows reasonable is always followed by some version of, "Eh, well, it depends, right, Hal? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel like right now, somewhere in the world, there is, no matter when you're listening to this, there's a lawyer arguing something's reasonable and another lawyer arguing it's not reasonable. That's sort of just lawyering, right? But in our world, in sort of claim substantiation advertising law, you know, reasonable is used a lot as it is, I think, across the law. And one way that it's often used, maybe the most even for, for us, I think, is when you're talking about implied claims, uh, we often talk about what are the reasonable messages conveyed by an advertisement. And, and that's that's something different, right? That's like another episode later in the year, I guess. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll see. But today we're talking about a very specific kind of reasonableness. Um, reasonableness as far as the kind of support and the level and type of evidence that's required to substantiate an advertising. So, so what makes that reasonable? You know, I'm reasonable, Latoya, you're reasonable. The people that come to, to NAD are reasonable, but we don't just rely on the assessments of the people in the room, right? Like as with everything that we do, there are, is a standard in place for what is reasonable. Right. And for what we're talking about today, that standard is the Pfizer factors. And, you know, these are really well known. You cite them, we cite them, everybody knows sort of the basics of advertising law and and that they they involve the Pfizer factors. They've heard the term, even if they don't really know what each and every one of them are. Um, These factors were first articulated by the FTC in a 1972 case. So they are 49 years old, incidentally, just one year younger than the NAD itself. Um, But that kind of goes to show the fact that they're really, you know, stable. They're a really stable framework that has worked throughout the decades. Um, So first, I'm just going to list them all out. The Pfizer factors are the type of product, the type of claim, the consumer benefit from a truthful claim, 
the ease of developing substantiation for a claim, the consequences of a false claim, and the amount of substantiation experts in the relevant field believe is reasonable. So that's basically it. These are kind of the guiding factors of advertising substantiation. Um, they were memorialized in the FTC's 1983 policy statement about ad substantiation. So, you know, they're very respected, they're very established, and lots of people look to them when they're developing their substantiation. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty ubiquitous. And just to sort of point out and put to the side, that 1983 policy statement also talked about establishment claims, which are claims that sort of set the standard for that claim within the claim itself, right? So it says the claim is proven, you know, something's clinically proven, for example, would be an establishment claim. And that increases the level of substantiation that a consumer would expect from that claim, right? If you say it's clinically proven, okay, well, the standard then is it's clinically proven. Um, that's not really what we're talking about when we're going through these Pfizer factors here. It's sort of uh, its own little sort of separate category of reasonable evidence because the reasonable answer is whatever you told me it is. So so that, that makes its own sort of sense, but um, we're, we're not really diving into that today, right? That's a, that's a future podcast episode for sure. Oh, yeah. All these, there's a lot, of, a lot of teasing of the next episode and the episode after that. I love it. It's great. <laughs> All right. So, you know, the Pfizer factors are a substantiation standard and they're a flexible standard. That's another thing you'll often hear when people are talking about the Pfizer factors. Like this is flexible. It's not rigid. It's not set in stone. Um, I think, you know, let's get a little nerdy right now and really talk about the theory behind that. Like, why is it important that this is a flexible standard? Yeah. I mean, I think it goes to optimizing for consumers the the effect of this this rule this standard right if this was a rigid standard it wouldn't necessarily match the optimized amount of truthful advertising that a consumer would get right there's a, there's built in for regulators and for the national advertising division or or anybody who sort of trying to set standards for, for the amount of evidence needed to support an advertising claim. There's a cost-benefit analysis, right? You want to have as much truthful advertising out there because it's valuable for consumers, it's valuable for the marketplace, and you want to minimize the harmful information that's not supported. And the amount of evidence and the, the, the resources that go into creating the substantiation has to be a factor in that cost-benefit analysis. And, and you really want to get it right. You want, you want to maximize truthful information, minimize unsupported information. And in order to do that, um, it has to be flexible. Otherwise, you're letting unsupported information through sometimes, or you're, you're, letting sort of, you're holding back truthful information that'll be valuable to consumers. So it's a very practical standard in in being flexible and maximizing uh, what's valuable for consumers. As you were talking, I was really thinking, you know, this standard is basically the, the Goldilocks standard. You know, you want something that's like not too hard, but not too soft, you know, not too cold, but not too hot. You know, we, we're looking for that sweet spot that, you know, Goldilocks was trying to get herself into when it comes to 
advertising substantiation. <laughs> Helpful analogy there. Are we Goldilocks or are we the bears? I don't know. <laughs> Never mind. It's getting out of hand. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. Um, so I think for our listeners, it would be helpful for us to go through each of the factors, kind of talk a little bit about you know what what they are, how we look at them, how we understand them here at NAD. Um, so let's kick it right off, starting with the type of product and type of claim. And we're actually going to talk about these two factors together um, because they seem to really have a kind of interrelated impact on the level of evidence we would expect um, advertisers to have to substantiate a claim. We kind of need to look at them together. You know, there are there's the the nature of the product itself. You know, what kind of product literally are we talking about? Um, things like whether it's an expensive product that will you know require a high upfront investment from the consumer, or whether you know it's something that's you know used on the body or in the body. All of these things will play a factor in how much evidence or the level of evidence that's required. Um, but additionally, they play a part into whether or not a consumer can verify the truthfulness and the validity of the advertising claim being made. You know, that's really something that's important, you know, when a consumer can't figure out whether this product really works unless they spend, you know, hundreds of dollars to actually purchase the product. That's, you know, that's a really big issue. Um, and we want to make sure that anything that induces that sale is based on truthful information and that the advertiser has a reasonable basis for supporting its claims. So it's really important when brands and companies are trying to figure out what kind of substantiation they need, they don't just, you know, look at, oh, what kind of product is this? Or, oh, what kind of claim am I making? It's really looking at the two of them together, in addition to the other factors we'll talk about in a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I, I think of a bunch of cases that we've had in the last year or so about fragrance products um, and aromatherapy products. And you know, if you think of a fragrance product that's not very expensive, where the claims are about hedonic benefits of whether or not you like something that might not be so consequential as to raise the level of evidence we would require, um, you'd think of a product that would generally have uh, simpler evidence behind the claims. However, in a lot of the cases that we had, these claims veered into health and wellness spaces, right? Into sort of aromatherapy claims about calming your nerves and anxiety. And they got pretty, pretty health oriented uh, as you sort of went further down that, that rabbit hole of, of claims about fragrance um, into these, these therapeutic claims. And, you know, while you're dealing with a fragrance product, which might initially sort of triggered to you the idea that it's a low level of substantiation, the fact that the claim was very consequential, and in fact, some of these products ended up being quite expensive, and which would maybe raise from a product point of view, the, the kind of substantiation we would require. But the claims drew up 
the level of evidence because they were talking about health and wellness and things that are very consequential for consumers. So, so we required a higher level of evidence than one then you know maybe some of these advertisers argued was appropriate because the claims sort of impacted it. So so it's not just the product, it's not just the claims, it's sort of the combination of both that is the way we, we view these. Um, the the analysis doesn't stop here though. Obviously, there's there's more factors uh, to consider. Yeah, exactly. I think um, I, I know one of the cases you you're probably thinking about was the air freshener case that um, we had um, a couple years ago, where the the claim involved the term aromatherapy, but the you know advertiser was just arguing like, hey, this is an air fresher. It's it's you know something that people just buy to you know make their house smell nice. You know they're not thinking about you know whether or not it's aromatherapy or if there's anything behind it. But you know we really did kind of highlight in that case. You know, aromatherapy is a meaningful term. It it means something to people, and you can't just say, "Well, this is an air freshener," and so people are going to disregard the common understanding of you know what that word means because of the product category. Again, you know, just like you were just saying, you got to look at both of those two things together. So another point about this factor is that. The type of claim not only can impact the level of evidence, but the type of evidence that may be appropriate. Um, This comes up a lot when we have cases where we have to differentiate between when subjective consumer data is appropriate or when objective product testing is appropriate for a given claim. quick and easy example, you know, for one product category, sports drinks, you know, there are a lot of different types of claims that you can make about a sports beverage that, you know, depending on what it conveys to the consumer, it's going to require a different kind of evidence. So for example, the better tasting sports drink versus the more natural sports drink. You know, it's about the same drink, obviously, but, you know, the type of evidence that we'd be looking for to substantiate those two claims, you know, would be very, very different. Yeah, I can imagine, and this is not based on any actual case that we've had, but in a sports drink hypothetical where, you know, there's a more natural sports drink claim and the evidence is subjective evidence as to whether or not consumers think that it is more natural, right? And, and that's not the way to support a more natural claim. The way to support a more natural claim is by speaking about the actual stuff, whether or not it is natural, right? That, that would be reasonable, not to just ask people if they thought it was more natural, because then other factors, you know, whatever. there's all kinds of reasons why that wouldn't be appropriate. I think that we don't have to get into that. But um, yeah, it definitely affects the type of evidence, uh, in addition to the level of evidence. Level of evidence is sort of an odd term, I think, in this context, but I think people understand what we're, we're getting at. And, you know, the Pfizer factors comes from the FTC, right? And they have a different posture in the regulatory space when it comes to claim substantiation than, than we do in the self-regulatory uh, system for advertising. So, when we view these factors, we're also considering the the marketplace and the competitive harm in a way that I don't know 
if the FTC is always looking as closely at, I mean, they, they're, they're, they're looking at consumer harm, right? And, and at these claims and how they're impacting consumers. We also are looking at, you know, we're dealing with challenges between competitors oftentimes. And so that competitive harm and the, the fairness of the marketplace also plays a role. So in taste tests, for example, there's a pretty high standard for how to do a proper taste test when you're coming to NAD. I don't think that's something that the FTC often deals with because it's about a comparative claim and maybe something that's relatively low in the consequences and in the type of product and the type of claim, you know, that wouldn't necessarily trigger a high standard for from a consumer's point of view, but from a competitive harm point of view, that, that can be a very impactful claim. And I think that it, it does sort of raise the level of uh, the, the, those sort of strong comparative claims raise the level of evidence that, that we often expect because of the competitive harms involved. And so that might differ from like an FTC Pfizer factors analysis when you're coming to NAD. Latoya, you have anything to add to that? Um, no, I, I agree. You know, we just, we look at a, a slightly different range of claims and issues than the FTC tends to focus on. And because of that, you know, we, we are going to have our, our different little flavor for each of these factors, just based on the fact that we might be seeing things, you know, that are very specific to comparative claims that are often, you know, not really the focus of FTC inquiries. So I think that's just definitely a, a little twist um, that we put on the Pfizer factors that's, you know, kind of unique to NAD. Yeah. So, so the next two factors, right, uh, that I think also sort of can be looked at in tandem is the consumer benefit from a truthful claim and conversely the consequences of, of a false claim. And I think these sort of fit together because they're kind of two sides of the same coin. When we weigh the consequences when reviewing a claim, you know, higher consequences require more substantial substantiation. Like I think that's why health claims, we've already referenced that in the aromatherapy context, right? But a health claim has a pretty high standard for substantiation because the consequences of a false health claim can be very serious. Um, and, and, you know, obviously the benefit of a truthful claim in that space is also um, very important as well. Um, but I think that would weigh sort of, you're sort of weighing those two sides, that cost benefit analysis we were sort of talking about earlier. And, and, and they kind of, they kind of interweave with each other. Right. And on the flip side of that coin, we definitely don't want to underestimate the the amount of and the level of substantiation that might be required for non-health related claims. You know, we're not saying necessarily that, you know, oh, everything else you can you can get away with, you know, less evidence or less rigorous evidence. You know, the 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 bottom line is that when you're advertising to consumers, you're promising them a benefit. You're you're making a promise um, about your product and what they will get should they, you know, purchase it or, or use your service or whatever it is that you're advertising. So you should be able to demonstrate in a reliable manner that consumers, when they, you know, do things as directed and use the product 
properly, they're going to get that benefit. And and that's just, you know, the bottom line. Whatever level of evidence it takes to get you to that bottom line, that's what you need to have, regardless of whether it's a health-related or non-health-related claim. You really just have to be able to back up what you're saying in your advertising. Overall, false claims have a detrimental effect on the marketplace. They erode consumer trust and, you know, you know, people are skeptical about everything and and that harms, you know, everyone. It, It harms the consumer because maybe they're passing up, you know, something that would be beneficial for them because, you know, overall they just think advertisers are, you know, faking it or it, it, and it hurts the marketplace. The, the advertisers who are making truthful claims that are, you know, appropriately backed up, you know, they might be losing consumers or customers because of this. So allowing false advertising to slide really just creates an incentive for false advertising. And, you know, we, yeah, you know, not to toot our own horn, but, you know, that's where NAD really cares about its role as a, a consumer protection organization. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we, we don't hear it too often, but every once in a while, you know, maybe not quite so straightforward, but you'll you'll hear someone allude to the idea that, what's the harm in the false ad, right? Or, or, or not, I guess we don't hear that too often, but you'll hear something to the effect of, you know, oh, consumers, this isn't really material to them. It's not that important. So why are you making us go through all this uh, substantiation for a claim that's not even changing consumers' minds? And, and I mean, one of the things I always think of, and, and I don't, you know, is then why are you saying it if it's not in, influencing consumers, right? But but <laughs> but also the idea that there's potentially false advertising out there is the harm in and of itself, right? So so it's not just like a an even scale between in, in that cost benefit analysis, right? You have to consider the fact that any false claim has a harm. And so it's not it's not like a one-to-one weighing. There there's always going to be a foot on the scale for ensuring that false claims don't slip through. Right. Like an incremental effect that, you know, over time is definitely going to add up and, and have an effect on the marketplace. So our next factor is the ease of developing substantiation for a claim. You know, NAD often says that if it's too onerous or too expensive or too difficult for an advertiser to develop the appropriate substantiation for a particular claim, then the solution is don't make the claim, not you know <laughs> to loosen the substantiation standards around that claim. And you know, facially, this factor might seem to cut against that. You know, might it's a little bit you know if you're sort of looking at it superficially, it, it sounds like you know the opposite, but Really, I think there's a different way to look at this, and maybe let's talk about that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, new companies that maybe aren't as familiar or don't necessarily have the resources to to substantiate strong claims. Um, you know, this, this prong isn't about letting those claims slide. Uh, you know, just because the resources of that particular brand or company 
aren't in place to do the work to substantiate the claim, right? That's 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 not the what this prong is about. Consumers getting truthful advertising will always sort of outweigh those considerations, uh, at least you know at the national advertising division. So, I think it's more about having some additional flexibility. We talk about the flexible standard of, of reasonableness here. Um, I think this prong adds to that flexibility and allowing, uh, you know, substantiation to be modified to sort of get around potential roadblocks. You know, um, I think standards that are sort of come and emanate from the Pfizer factors in a particular space also shouldn't necessarily be rigid. Um, and I think that's what this is about. Um, you know, we had a case with a, um, a pet product. Uh, it was like a dental chew, right? And when they, you know, cleans the, the teeth, the pet's teeth, and there was a claim about digestibility. And, you know, we have those kinds of claims. We usually expect um, like a clinical test um, that the animal can digest that product. And the advertiser explained to us that doing a clinical test here could be dangerous because if you... If it's not digestible, you can really hurt the animal um, in the product, and you know, using the product. And so they explained that the best way to do this test was to use a simulated digestion scenario that they showed could mimic real digestion in a pet. And we accepted that evidence. We, we applied flexibility because it was too onerous in the potential humaneness of the of the substantiation to do it the way we might have otherwise expected. Exactly. I think, you know, a, another similar example has to do with the way that we look at um, clinical testing in humans. You know, we have tons of case reports that lay out what we would consider um, a, a good and robust clinical study. And, and one thing that's mentioned over and over again is the use of the placebo. It's sort of like a, a basic thing. If your your study doesn't have a, a placebo for no good reason, you know, that might be something that we question during the case. But we've also had cases that involve testing of a product that is uh, a medication necessary to manage some sort of long-term disease or condition. Um, specifically, I'm thinking about, you know, we've had cases about aspirin, which is used to manage chronic heart conditions. You know, you can't, you know, take people who are on heart medicine or <laughs> taking aspirin to to manage their risk of a heart attack and, and give them a placebo. Like that is that is not a good idea. Um, so, you know, that's where you would have, you know, some flexibility with the advertiser, you know, presenting, you know, um, information showing like, okay, well, we can't do that. But here is another way that we've managed to make this test reliable that, you know, does not undercut, you know, its, its importance and then the test results. But, you know, it just would otherwise be impossible, you know, to substantiate the claim in the way that we typically would expect. Yeah. And I mean, I think another sort of element that, that just to give one more example, that's not sort of in the health space, but I know, you know, when it comes to the kinds of evidence of consumer perception, it's shifted over the years. It used to be basically you'd find people at shopping malls and do a, a test, uh, you know, a study on them. 
it, well, actually not just consumer, but also there'd be taste tests. It'd be all kinds of tests where you'd go and find people at shopping malls, but people don't go to shopping. I mean, now no one goes to shopping malls, but even for years now, people don't go to shopping malls necessarily uh, as often. And as and these tests sort of moved into an, you know, an online format. And I think uh, as mall intercept became more onerous uh, of a way to do these kinds of tests, you know, we, we had to be flexible. And I think the FTC was as well, right. In, in understanding that there has to be a better way to do this because of the ubiquitousness of this kind of study method. Right. And so it would took some time, but but the studies moved to an online method in a way that was still reliable and 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 you know I think methods changed over the years for sure, but we it wasn't just this strict rigid standard of if the industry said mall intercept is the way to do it this is the way it's going to be done, and if it doesn't work anymore too bad we we didn't say that right we said all right we have a new method we're going to be open to it we're going to. We're going to test it and make sure it's it's reliable, but but we're going to go in that direction, and that's I think this rule as to the as to what's reasonable plays a role. This sort of factor um, plays a role played a role in, in online versus mall intercept studies. Great, I mean, and that's another important part about the flexibility of of the Pfizer factors. They can take into consideration the evolution that industries are going through, and you know kind of be matched up to to that constant change and and you know that shift that industries can make again probably why these factors are still around you know 50 years later I know the um the FTC in 1972 was not considering uh whether or not studies would be do be done on uh you know, video tablets or some sort of whatever the whatever the version of the internet in the future, you know, tinfoil <laughs> hats and everything. Like that's not, you know, it, it's a it's it's necessarily flexible and it's why it's lasted so long for sure. You know, the, the last sort of Pfizer factor that we haven't talked about yet, I think is often the most relevant at NAD. Um, maybe not at the FTC, but 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 at NAD it's often the one that we focus the most on, which is the amount of substantiation experts in the relevant field believe is reasonable. You know, the FTC often has access to their own experts, right? They can do their own studies. They they have their own experts uh, available to them. And, you know, we don't. We rely on the parties that are providing evidence to us. And so it's very important that parties that come to NAD, challengers and advertisers alike, when they say what is reasonable as far as substantiation standards go, that they're not just saying it, right? They're tying it back to some reason. It is reasonable. Uh, and that is often what experts in the field think is relevant. You know, we don't make the standards. That's what we said in episode one when we we're saying who makes the rules. It's not us. We apply them. And so I think this is often what hitch, where reasonable basis in evidence sort of hitches upon. Right. And I think we should dig a little bit more into kind of what this factor means, because as you've said, it's it's so important for us at NAD. And sometimes, you know, based on the, the filings we get, there seems to be a little bit of confusion. You know, we talk about the factor talks about, you know, experts in the field and somebody just says, you know, 
puts their expert um, up and, and has them write a declaration. It's like, there you go. There's, there's what experts in the field believe, but it's a little bit more, you know, nuanced than that. So when we're talking about, you know, this factor, we're talking about general scientific consensus, essentially. And, and that means a few things. First, it means that the evidence or the, the proposition that you're putting forth as being representative of what experts in the field believe is reasonable should be based on the opinion of more than one expert. You know, you can't just have your expert's opinion about, you know, what experts generally believe. You know, they there has to be more than just, you know, one you know, scientists saying like, this is the way it is, this is my opinion, and therefore that's what experts believe. Like that's not enough. Um, instead, the expert opinion should indicate that, you know, this amount of substantiation is representative of scientific consensus on substantiation requirements for whatever claim you're trying to support. So it should be, you know, representative of the broad thinking when it comes to substantiation, which, you know, obviously is a little bit harder <laughs> to show than, you know, just finding somebody who kind of supports your <laughs> claim interpretation. But that's why it's it's all the more important um, for your expert experts and your expert declarations to really kind of show that this is not just what they have to say, but what everybody would find reasonable. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, expert declarations are an important part of the kind of evidence we review, but it's not the end-all be-all, right? There needs to be standards pointed to, whether, you know, industry standards or scientific standards or, or studies that are out there in the field that support the, the point of view of, of the expert. It's an expert doesn't just get to say, it is because I say so. They have to say, it is because this is what the industry says. This is what the scientific evidence points to. And, and you know, we do get cases where sort of this gets butt up against. I had a case that, that, that I worked on with a supplement, I recall, and they had a very well-established, well-credentialed expert who was talking about sort of what the consensus is in the field about something. And, and the underlying studies in evidence in the record pointed to a lot murkier of a situation than the expert, you know, declared to. And, and I don't think it necessarily means the expert was wrong. Um, I think it means that, you know, the level of substantiation is in evidence. And, and uh, we did not rely on that expert just saying so. We looked at the underlying studies in, in the record and found that there wasn't enough evidence to support the claim that they were making. And that, that was upheld in our appellate process um, that we have in advertising self-regulation, the National Advertising Review Board. So um, I think that's a really important point, LaToya, as to both the importance of expert evidence, but also the limitations of just an expert saying something. Right. And, and a, another point that I actually think is important to make is that your expert needs to be an expert 
in the relevant field that they are opining about. You know, sometimes, you know, I'm thinking of a case um, that I had that had to do with um, uh, dentistry and then some claims that were remade uh, regarding a, a dental product. And the both parties had experts that are saying, well, you know, this is what this claim means to dentists, or this is what this claim means to orthodontists. And while these experts were, you know, obviously very well educated and, and you know, renowned in their field of dentistry or orthodontry, um, they're, they weren't experts on claim interpretation. So while there are, you know, the opinions that they were giving were certainly, you know, illuminative and, you know, we, we, we always welcome kind of that background understanding they as dental experts couldn't really say, oh, this is how all dentists or all orthodontists would interpret that claim because that is not their specialty necessarily. Um, so that's just another thing to keep in mind. Absolutely. And um, one last point I wanted to make is that NAD's efforts to harmonize with relevant regulations and guidance can also serve as a check for us when we're determining what experts in the field believe. Um, you know, the guidance documents that are issued by federal agencies were developed with the input of scientists as well as the regulators who have the expertise in consumer understanding. So um, I know how both you and I worked on some cases involving the term non-toxic. And we had to sort of balance the advertiser's expert and their um, interpretation of what non-toxic means and how it should be substantiated with information that we were getting, you know, kind of gleaned from the FTC's green guides and um, the statement of, of purpose behind the green guides, which kind of did not exactly gel <laughs> with what the advertiser's expert was saying. And so, you know, we had to kind of take into consideration those kind of opposing views when we were developing or determining rather um, the appropriate le level of substantiation required. Yeah. I mean, that goes to the point of, you know, that you can't view each of these claims in a vacuum, right? The 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 what are the experts in the field think is reasonable is important, but not more important than the consequences of a false claim to consumers, right? You need to like it all plays together. And so um if experts in the field from a technical standpoint think that something is reasonable, it also has to be reasonable for consumers, right? Consumer takeaway and understanding of that claim, you know, of consumers being non-experts in that area. Also, they also need to sort of understand a truthful message from, from that claim. And, and I think that's where looking to, uh, to, to regulators and, and regulatory guidance is particularly helpful, right? To what you, you were talking about before, which is sort of the disconnect of, of experts in a field and, and what that, terminology or advertising claim might mean outside of that field. Well, why don't we um, end with some tips and takeaways for the listeners? How, what are you hoping listeners take away from today's episode? 
Yeah. So, so one thing I hope that uh, listeners take away from our discussion today is that although the Pfizer factors is sort of like formulated as a checklist um, uh, of points, they're not meant to be looked at in isolation from each other, right? They feed into each other and they sort of create a holistic view of what might be reasonable for substantiating a particular advertising claim. And so, you know, looking at the Pfizer factors, one factor shouldn't be used as a get out of NAD free card or possibly a get out of FTC free card, um, you know, just to as a way to sort of justify undersubstantiating a particular claim because one factor might weigh in favor of a lower standard of evidence. Um, we're not going to view each claim in isolation. Um, we view this as sort of a rubric to get to the best way to, to you know, protect consumers and protect marketplaces um, from false advertising. And so we're going to view it at holistically. And I think advertisers should do the same. They should view it as a tool to figure out what's the best way to support their advertising claims, not as a way to reverse engineer um, supporting what they, they've already done. Uh, an, another thing I think uh, sort of as to that last point is look to industry standards to determine what's reasonable. Um, look to the regulatory guidance to determine what's reasonable. Uh, and, and don't just rely on your own sense of reasonableness. Um, you know, the factors, the Pfizer factors are important and it, and it sort of ensures, going through the Pfizer factors ensures that you're looking outside your own sort of sense of reasonable um, to determine what might be expected of you uh, when supporting an advertising claim. Well, you know, I think those were very reasonable takeaways, which if I ever start a band, that'll be my band name because, oh. you know, I think that's pretty cool. Um, <laughs> the reasonable takeaways. The reasonable takeaways. That's a good one. <laughs> anyway, thank you again for tuning in to this episode of the Ad Watchers. We really hope you enjoyed our deep dive into the reasonable basis standard. Yeah. So join us next month uh, when we'll be discussing disclosures. Yes. Disclosures. I, I mean... Who would have thought it would be so fun? I think it's a very fun topic. Um, as always, you can head over to our website, bbbprograms.org, to learn more about what we do at BBB Programs National Advertising Division or, or any of our other self-regulatory programs. Uh, that's all for this episode. See you next time. Bye, LaToya. Bye, Hal.